Hello, welcome to Residential Spread. Uh, I'm Corey Gergen, and I'm here with Alex Edwards. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, still, uh, you know, working on lying to everyone about how <laughs> ready I am for the semester. <laughs> uh, I still feel bad about stepping on your on your punchline. Uh, it's okay. It was a bit. <laughs> it was a bit that really needed work, um, and I I didn't have time to put in that work. Much like my preparation for the semester, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> We're also here with uh, Eric Lewis. Eric, how are you doing today? Uh, doing pretty well. Still deciding whether I'm more excited to be like saved by break doom scrolling or whether I'm more dreading the semester starting again. But oh, yeah, we'll that's a po- that's a positive way to look at the start of the semester. I like that. Um, Half class nice. full. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Molly Slavin is also here. Molly, how are you? I'm okay. You know, by the time this comes out, our semesters will have started. I'm certain that we are all just going to be really on top of our lives. The semester <laughs> is going great. Um, so I don't know why everyone's being all doom and gloomy. Alex, I think the joke that failed in our teaser, I think it was actually prophetic. I think that we're all on top of our lives together. <laughs> we're, we're all more prepared than we think we are. There it is. Uh, and, and finally, Josh Cohen is here. Josh, how are you? How was your break? What break? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the immortal words of Smash Mouth, the years start coming, and they don't stop coming. And that's where I'm at, because it's 2021, we're on, we're on the precipice of, of a new, uh, reality and it, it oddly feels a lot like the the same previous reality we were living in so uh i guess uh you know tbd there were about five hours of cautious optimism between um ossoff and warnock being declared the winners in the two georgia center runoff races and the storming of the u.s capitol i know we didn't even get a day we didn't even no. get a day for our victory lap no no it was a few days or a few hours feeling <laughs> feeling good and then and then not um Alex, what are we here to talk about today? <laughs> you haven't read our introduction yet, Corey. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> my brain is not here. Uh, we are term-limited contingent faculty teaching humanities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Like other schools, Georgia Tech has experienced massive disruptions, shifts, and changes due to the spread of coronavirus. We have now been teaching and researching in a pandemic for nearly a year, and things are no more stable now than they were at the start. On this show, we investigate the sources and consequences of the policies that have led us here and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of the precariat. Now I can say welcome to the (laughs) second season of Residential Spread. Uh, As we talked about briefly in time-honored faculty tradition, we took some time, quote-unquote, off over the winter holidays, and frankly, I found it to be neither restful nor relaxing. Uh, daily COVID case counts and deaths have continued to rise, and while we've been counting down the days to a Biden presidency, we still have questions about what steps his administration plans to take to get the pandemic under control and how quickly we can get those plans up and running, assuming, of course, that by the time this episode airs, the transfer of power will indeed have happened peacefully dot 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 question mark what a sentence to have to say yes yeah (laughs) good god (laughs) 
Uh, at this point, I can jump in and give our regular temperature check. Uh, today's temperature check is the number 100 million. Biden vows to distribute 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Uh, so, everyone, uh, what does this mean specifically for I higher ed, our focus on residential spread? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's <laughs> hard to know so far. I'm still a little bit in this, like, feeling of... Um, I don't, God, I don't want to say like, I feel like that's fake news, but I'm a little bit like disbelieving that anyone is getting the vaccine at this moment. Like it, it seemed to happen kind of so quickly. Um, do you guys feel that way? Like there's this like reality hasn't set in yet that, that we could potentially like be safe from this thing that, relatively soon. That makes perfect sense to me. And I found it kind of an interesting counterpoint with how some people have been skeptical of the coronavirus this whole time. I mean, I still, as you are saying, find it hard to believe that the vaccine is out there just because everything's been terrible for so long. Um, and I've heard from people, oh, my brother who works in this capacity in a hospital, he had his first shot the other day or this person did. And it's kind of in the same way that there was all that discussion of how to some people the coronavirus isn't real until someone near them has gotten it or died. I feel like inversely for people who have always taken coronavirus seriously, it's the vaccine that is kind of tenuous until it gets close enough to you to seem real. At least that's been my experience so far. Yeah, I yeah. I know a few people who have gotten their first shot. Um, my my brother uh, and and some other folks who are in healthcare, um, or who are in other states that are like rolling out a little bit faster than than we are. But I think I think that like hesitancy to believe it is also tied to the fact that like the vaccine's been presented as this endpoint and it's not mm. right. Mm. Um, like personally being vac vaccinated, even if you get it early, probably shouldn't change a whole lot about our behavior. Um, right. And, you know, at the moment, like the rates of people who say they will take the shot when they can are maybe not as high as they need to be to actually speed up the end of this in a way that we would like. Um, so, yeah, I believe in the vaccine. I'm a little bit hesitant to believe that the vaccine is just like in 100 days going to solve all of our problems. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, Definitely. And something I'm afraid of, too, is um as soon as those 65 and over get their shots, which they should, they should jump the line. I'm not arguing mm -hmm. with that. Um, but I'm a very, I'm a little afraid that as soon as that happens, it's going to be, well, country's open for business again because it's safe for them. And they're the ones who make laws and hold policy and make laws and shape policy. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm also a little nervous about that. I have to say though, Molly, like it's unclear to me that the country hasn't been open for business and back <laughs> to normal in large part for like, fucking months now right yeah, like right. i don't and, know um, I, I at the very least the messaging will change right like biden's messaging will be wear a mask you know limit your activities outside your home like nobody's saying any of that at the federal level and you know governors it's like such a crapshoot like depending on the state you live in so at the very least i don't think biden thinks that 100 days it's all going to be over and that's a good sign so if we could just speed up some of the distribution i know there there was kind of like some issue about 
holding back doses versus distributing all the doses we have and anticipating that the manufacturing will catch up when people need their second dose a few weeks later. Um, that seems to be the Biden plan is just get all the doses we have out there and then basically hope that people can still get their second shot, you know, down the road, as opposed to the Trump administration seems to have been keeping back half just in case, which sounds like a very cautious, safe thing to do. But when you think about the bottleneck, that is the number of vaccines available. It also seems kind of crazy to limit the stockpile in that way. Can I, yeah. can I, ask, can I ask a question uh, that I should know the answer to and I don't? Is there like a limit on how long you can wait for the second shot? Like will the first shot wear off if you wait too long to get the second one? So there's a couple things going on. I mean one is – like the maximum effectiveness of the two-shot sequence, right? There's a, there's, right. A, there's a window that you're supposed to get that second shot that is going to okay. maximize your immunity. However, the the initial testing they did for people who only got one shot, it was still actually pretty effective. So I think that's right. part of the calculation mm-hmm. is like if you can double the number of people who are getting it, even if worst case scenario, some percentage of those people don't get the second booster shot, that might be a better sort of risk reward calculation for the population as a whole. Right. But they're, I mean, what they're saying is that they just anticipate that the manufacturers will be able to continue to boost capacity and that they won't, people won't be in that position. They will be able to get their second shot. Right, 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 right. Yeah. It's like, do you, do you keep half the shots back out of the abundance of caution? Make sure we reserved a second shot for you. Or do you say, we've got to push hard now. Even one right. shot is really effective. And yeah. then we hope and plan on everyone getting that second shot. Right. right. Well, it becomes a calculus of like, um, you know, if the, the, from what I've read, the first shot is maybe um, 50% effective, somewhere in the 50% range. Like there's a, a 50% chance that you um, could still contract COVID after having the first shot. Um, but once you get this, the booster shot, the second one, um, it goes up to like somewhere in the 90% range effectiveness. So there's a less than 10% chance that you would still get infected with COVID. Um, and it becomes this calculus of like, is it better to have a larger percentage of the population at 50% or a smaller percentage of the population at 90%? Um, how do we all very complicated math um, questions. And also like, as Lindsay uh, Grubbs pointed out to us last uh, season, right. There's also like an ethical component to all of this um, data calculation about, you know, what are the best steps to take? Um, I, for one, (laughs) I'm very glad to not have to be in a position of (laughs) decision-making about (laughs) which of these is the better option, right? I I think also it becomes complicated just because of the unpredictable or uncontrollable uh, variable that is uh, how people react to getting that first shot, just in terms of uh, we were talking about the vaccine incorrectly being framed as an endpoint. And if someone gets their first shot and is like, oh, that's it, I'm fine now. And then people open up things recklessly, like a 50% chance of a high number of dangerous interactions means a lot of infections. Right. But we already are at a lot of infections. That's a good point. That's a good point. pretending like things are right. normal, right? I mean, we had 
Jesus Christ, we had more than 4,000 COVID deaths um, one day in the second week of January, which is when we're recording this. Um, it, and there's, yeah. there's still indoor dining here in Georgia, a lot of yeah. other places. There's mm-hmm. still indoor dining and stuff like. True. Yeah. 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 I guess the point so, I wanted to make was just the importance of messaging, as we were saying. Like, it's not just the vaccine. It's also right. the education around the vaccine. And and the importance of, like, to that point of getting as many people as possible, 50% less likely to contract it. The more people you get that shot, then the less likely you are to come into contact with coronavirus in the first place, right? So there's, like, a, I like exponent, exponential is probably not the right math term, but, like, there's, like, that sort of, like, herd immunity type effect, right? That if if we can get 80% of the population, 50% protected, then we'd also be less likely to be coming into contact with coronavirus anyway. Yes. I yeah. guess. Did I say that in a way that makes sense? Yes. You did. You okay. absolutely did. <laughs> to kind of to kind of pivot us back towards what what this vaccine distribution, ramping up vaccine distribution is going to mean for higher ed. Um, I do think it's interesting. There's been some internal discussions amongst uh, deans and chairs at Georgia Tech um, that we have access to because someone emails them to us <laughs> and I read I read everything um, like religiously um yeah there's there's been some concern and some questions and some sort of um musing over uh you know once the vaccine starts to roll out on our campus for example um then does that mean that people's remote work agreements are going to expire um or be invalidated and are we going to have to come back into the classroom um during the spring semester. And I was heartened to see in the chat logs that I read through, um, I felt very, I felt a lot like a, like a white hat hacker <laughs> reading these, <laughs> these chat logs that apparently nobody else opened. Um, not amongst you guys. I mean, amongst like our larger <laughs> cohort of people we talked to. Um, regardless, there were, uh, I was heartened to see that people were, were kind of repeating again that like the vaccination um, is not a one-time event, right? That it's this like ongoing process. Um, and that, you know, it, it seemed to be the attitude at Georgia Tech that, um, you know, spring semester is going to be what it is right now, which is largely identical to fall semester, right, where um, some people are teaching in person, many people are not, and those who are are hopefully doing it safely uh, with social distancing in place, um, that there's not kind of that much chance for in-classroom um, contact with coronavirus. Um, they also, what I've seen has suggested that that right now Georgia Tech is planning for fall semester 2021 to look much like fall 2020 did. Um, so they're actually, it doesn't appear to be that they're ready yet to kind of throw away these precautions. Um, unlike much of the country, like I've said, which is just like open for business completely as normal. Um, but of course, you know, we have a, a, a wrinkle in the fold, right, which is that we don't know what the University System of Georgia is going to end up saying, um, particularly like over the summer. Um, 
they could come in and say like, well, you know, there's a vaccine now. So get your asses back in the classroom. Everybody, 100 percent residential. Which is something I'm fully, fully assuming will happen. Yeah, yeah I, I am uh, as well. I'm more worried about it in the fall. I'm not particularly concerned about the spring because there's like not a huge financial incentive to shift it in the spring. Right. right? Like the, the students who are on campus are already on campus. The students who are at home are not going to suddenly buy a dorm room in March because um, the Board of Regents insisted that we do more in person. Um I guess maybe that's naive on my part, but I can't I can't see the incentive to like disrupt the semester to do more in person. We might get more of those emails like we got in the fall that are like, you know, numbers are low. It would be nice if people did things in person, but I don't I'm not expecting a mandate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Because of that very timeline aspect you were just describing, Corey, I'm less worried about uh teaching modalities shifting that I'm worried about uh teaching adjacent things. For example, I'm a professional consultant in the comm lab and I know that there's a lot of worry on the comm lab staff that they might at a certain point in the semester say, well, you're all here and plenty of students are on campus. Why don't you have sessions in person? I I think that's a, a legitimate fear. I would be very surprised if it ended up happening because, of course, the thing that we're not taking into account yet is that we actually don't know still what vaccine rollout on our college campuses is going to totally look like. Um, I've seen evidence to suggest that it's going to vary by state, what the, the State Department of Public Health um who they decide is in which group um, and who gets prioritized, right? So I know in Georgia, we're starting to hear this kind of trickle of information. Um, it seems like faculty and staff of universities, I don't know if it's all universities or just some, are going to be treated in the 1B and 1C category, um, which would make them kind of categorized as like non-healthcare essential workers. Um, and so, you know, uh, I've heard buzz from UGA that that some staff members are going to be vaccinated within the next month. Um, we haven't heard anything that specific from tech, um, but none of this to, is is taking into account when our students will be vaccinated. Yeah, right. They're going to be like the last. I mean, they're 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 young, they're healthy. There's like there's so many people unless they unless individual people have, you know, important uh conditions like underlying conditions 18 to 22 year olds like they're going to be at the end of the line so even if you know fingers crossed faculty and staff all get vaccinated you're still going to hold in-person classes with however many thousands of students at bigger schools like that that doesn't seem that tenable like if none of them are vaccinated even if all of us are in all ways like the minute i am offered a vaccine i will take one um but yeah, like we aren't, we aren't the spread vector on college campuses, right? Like, like if our goal is to stop the spread of coronavirus from a public health standpoint, then yeah, it needs to be students in the dorm. It needs to be staff who are on campus all the time, right? Like even those of us who are teaching like hybrid in-person partially modalities, like we have some control over how often we are on campus and how, how many of our students we gather with when we do that. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, staff who are, you know, whether it's the comm lab opening up or, or you know, other staff um, in the dining hall, things like that, 
um, those people don't have a lot of control over their level of risk. Uh, students who are living on campus, once they are on campus, don't have a lot of control over their level of risk. Um, so, yeah. It, honestly, I mean, now that you have kind of laid it out that way, I'm thinking like this is – in terms specifically in terms of vaccine rollout on college campuses, I think we might be going about it the wrong way. I think that we might be have swapped what it actually needs to be, right? And that that faculty and staff who can work remotely um, or can control their environment and their level of contact actually need to be at the end of the line. Sorry to say, yeah. <laughs> um, but but that students who are in dorms and are in these kinds of, of um, communal living situations, right, just like people at nursing homes and um, inmates, uh, residents of, of prisons and jails across the country actually need to be first in line. Yep. And I wish we had some sort of, I mean information from the Biden. I wish we had more. We have some information. I wish we had more information about the Biden administration and how they envision this, because without it, it's just it's such a guessing game. Yeah. And and I like to go back to, I think, Alex, what you said about not wanting like these are really hard decisions. And I don't I don't want to. But those categories are so vague and confusing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like we have a lot of degrees among the five of us. Like, we aren't sure which of those six subcategories we are in, right? <laughs> because there is no answer, right? You can just tell me if I count as a teacher. You know what I mean? I don't even, I can't yeah, even figure out right. if I count as a teacher. Right. right. Doing the math, I believe we should have 15 degrees between us. <laughs> are there any just... double majors in here? No. <laughs> oh, I double I double majored, but it's oh, there you go. It's only 16. one BA, right? Yeah, the one degree. BAs. Yeah. Oh. Do I? Yeah, you don't get two BAs unless you like do a different. Go back and do a totally different. Yeah, no, program. I just have one BA okay. just okay. in English and peace studies. Like it's not. It's, okay. Yeah. After more than a decade in higher education, I have no idea how it works. <laughs> Maybe if I doubled in English and like biology, and I had a BA and a BS, but okay. yeah, okay. I did. Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us on how many degrees do we collectively have? Corner. We're bringing you the questions that matter. How, how does degree granting work? <laughs> Uh, listen, when you only get to teach freshmen for your entire um, academic career up to this point, you don't know how degree granting works. <laughs> it's almost like it's a, a you know miscalculation and a problem in the system. Almost. <laughs> almost. Are, are you suggesting that the problems in higher ed predate coronavirus? Um, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me try my sarcastic voice again. <laughs> no. I would never do that. The real the problem is that you can't see my face. The face is really what gives it the sarcasm. You're yes, that's that's true. Moving on, <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about Biden's plans for or, or his hopes for this vaccine rollout and how fast we're going to get how many doses out. Um, but another big piece of this with Biden um, coming into office or, or you know, hope, as I said, hopefully having um, been inaugurated <laughs> by the time this episode <laughs> comes out, uh, I laugh because otherwise I would like descend into a horrified um 
like panic attack state. Um, <laughs> it's been pretty crazy this this week. Last week, it was a week mm-hmm. ago. Holy fucking shit! It was a week ago. Um, the other thing we have to think about, right, is Biden's de- Department of Education. What the Department of Education is going to look like in a, a Biden presidency in a Biden White House, um, and we don't know much yet, but we do know who Biden has tapped for um, Education Secretary, which is a, a man named Miguel Cardona. Actually, he does have a doctorate, so he would be Doctor Miguel Cardona, um, who is currently serving as the Education Commissioner of Connecticut. Um, so we we know a little bit. He's given a speech where he accepted um, his nomination uh, and talked a little bit about his background and things like that. Um, so we can kind of conjecture as to what his Department of Education might look like, maybe. Have you guys done any, like, have you had a chance to, to dig into this dude at all? Yeah, it's okay bit. if the answer is no. I, <laughs> My answer is no. My answer is also no. See my comments about prepping my class. <laughs> um, not enough to like speak as an expert um, on him in, in any kind of way. Uh, I, I think you're right that, you know, it's hard to know a lot about this, these kinds of moves. Um, I guess the, I mean, the one thing that I do have, I do have trust in is that like, the Department of Education will go back to doing what it was designed to do, uh, which it hasn't for the last four years, right? I mean, one of the one of the first things Betsy DeVos did when she came in was like shut down all of these um, civil rights cases. Um, that to be, were, I almost said to be fair, and I'm going to absolutely strike that from the record. <laughs> never, ever in my fucking life be fair to Betsy DeVos. Um, but I will say that that a lot of those civil rights cases um, and the the um, stuff that had come out of the Dear Colleague letter um, that interpreted Title IX in a broader way is only I mean, that only dates back to the Obama administration. Right. right. So while they were doing uh, potentially important work, there was a, a, a small chance for that Title IX guidance um, to be kind of misconstrued and used against people um, in bad ways. But mostly it was all like really good work. Um, But it was all relatively new, right? I I was going to say I have paid attention to uh, Biden's plans regarding Title IX just because, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, that campaign against sexual assault on college campuses was such a big part of his vice presidential portfolio back in the Obama years. And he has stated that he plans to return to a lot of that. But I've also been seeing a lot of news about how because of the uh, rule changing process, the formal process that DeVos used, she basically did a lot to insulate many of the changes she made from immediate intervention from future administrations. So mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see just how much um, the Department of Education is able to do. The understanding I got from the research I've done is that basically it's going to need congressional intervention, something which is a lot easier now that Ossoff and Warnock have won. But yeah, you're welcome, is- America. Well, <laughs> I mean, this conversation would be different to begin with because it would be unclear whether Cordona could get um, confirmed. Yeah. Right. By this, right. I mean, 
McConnell was had has been floating like the possibility of not seating a a, a cabinet for Biden, right? Um, which would be a very different conversation right now. I, I didn't realize. I didn't realize until we started recording this. Like, I didn't realize what I I didn't know what I didn't know. You know what I mean? I'm just now realizing how contingent all of this is. I it's not feel like I've been. I feel like I've been doing a lot of swears on this episode. Um, <laughs> and so instead of doing more, I'm just going to say that Mitch McConnell. And I'm going to leave a blank space. <laughs> you trying to say yeah. that it's a new year and a new us? It's a new year and a new U.S., maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we hope. So here's what we do know about Dr. Miguel Cardona, um, who, you know, now that the Georgia runoffs have happened, it seems likely that he will be able to be seated um, as a cabinet member. He is a former public school classroom teacher. Um, so, again, I mean, we have to compare him to DeVos here in this conversation, okay. right? Um Thank fucking Christ. He, he like actually has taught in a classroom in a public school. Um, like he's a real actual person who has to do with education um, and yes. not a um, I'm going to leave another blank there. Just can I, can whatever I, you want to Just because it was 20 years ago. But do you remember shortly after she took her office and she went to visit a public school and she came yes. out and she was like, she was like, yeah, these, these teachers, they just kind of complain a lot. They don't really, like, want new mm-hmm. ideas. They're just mm-hmm. kind of complainers. Anyway, that's all. Never taught a day in her life. Wow. She's a C word, and I won't say it. But... <laughs> um, yeah, and she also, of course, um, I mean, the, the like, tapping someone who was a public school teacher is huge because, of course, Betsy DeVos's, like, whole goal, um, well, her main goal was to like bring about the revelation because <laughs> um, she's part of that like psychotic evangelical um, contingent that believes that Trump was like the thing that would um, start the rapture. Um, and then her secondary goal, of course, is to like uh, sell as many pyramid schemes, get as many people into the pyramid scheme of Amway as possible. Um, and then beyond that, her other goal, of course, was to uh, decimate public education in favor of charter and private schools. Right. Like that was that was actually something that she like pushed really hard. That was like her thing, what she was known for. Um, which is like which is like where the doomsday religion and pyramid schemes intersect. Right. Because there's. There's money in like private faith-based education. Oh, we're gonna get into that this week. <laughs> <laughs> put it down on the list. We'll um, just just put a pin in that. We'll come back around. Yeah, we will. So Cardona actually, he tells a really interesting story. He has one of these sort of narratives um, that is very interesting uh, and perfectly pitched to his political situation and his participation in politics. And I'm going to say some more P words here, um, (laughs) which is that he was actually born to the children of Puerto Rican immigrants who were living in Yale acres, which is a housing project that is basically like one town North of New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale university is held, um, held (laughs) (laughs) contained. And now I'm seeing the city of New Haven, like cradling Yale like a baby. You know, um, that, that sounds right, actually. Anyway, I just think it's, like, hard to kind of write a better um, narrative than that, right? There's something, like, almost filmic 
um, literary about like that you would be born in a housing project called Yale Acres and then you would grow up and, um, you know, he credits public education with being like a great social leveler, um, equalizing his ability to access the kinds of um, opportunities that that are available here that not everyone gets to access, etc. Um, but the other thing that I really know about him um, from my sort of uh tiny dip into the research here is that he actually like is best known for pressing the Connecticut schools system to reopen um, during the pandemic because he was afraid as we have talked about many times this narrative of low income students falling behind quote unquote. Um, so I'm actually feeling a little bit mixed about mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things there, right? Like he he has really been focused on K to 12. So what's that going to mean for the Department of Education and their focus on higher ed? Um, but also, like if we have a person who is believes that schools have to be open during the pandemic, um, then like how much protection are we going to get as precarious academics? under that Biden administration, you and know, we should say too, this was something that came up in our, uh, pre- some of our previous episodes, you know, his rationale there was the fear of lower income and minority students being disproportionately, you know, however you want to say it, falling behind or, um, not being able to have the resources for remote learning. And that's something we talked about in a couple of our episodes, this terrible calculus of, the very people who are going to be disproportionately affected by the virus are the, are the same students that also are going to be the, have the least resources to do remote learning effectively mm-hmm. and safely. So um, I don't know. Does anybody know what the numbers were like in Connecticut? Like, how did they did they do OK? Was it I mean, I, I didn't I didn't see any huge. Headlines it was really like, bad at the very start of the pandemic. I know that Connecticut kind of became this like poster child for. um like sort of like wealthy suburban commuter communities from New York city who refused to social distance, et cetera. Right. Um, I do think they got it under control. Um, I'm not sure sort of where it stands now. I'm looking, um, I just pulled up the kind of Google coronavirus dashboard. Um, and it looks like so far Connecticut has seen, uh, 206,000 cases and 6,324 deaths from coronavirus, but we would need to norm that against population in order to be able to compare it to like Georgia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what the population of Connecticut is. Yeah. Anybody? We really <laughs> prepared. We really prepared for this. I, I took Connecticut history in fifth grade when I lived in Connecticut, but I, believe it or not, do not remember uh, the population. Interesting. Well, Georgia, um, just as a comparison point, it's, without it's norming like three and for a half population, million. It's like three and a half million Connecticut, yeah. Mm, okay, so that's much smaller. That was 2019. Mm. What's Georgia at right now? Hit me with that Georgia number. <laughs> oh, Georgia. Population or case numbers? Population, we're, we're I have the case numbers. 10.62. Like, yeah, Georgia's over 10 million, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, and and I, we've, had, we've, had about, we've had over 10,000 COVID deaths so far. Over 11 now. 
over yeah. 11,000 deaths. Yeah. yeah. This, this point I'm about to make would have flowed better uh, before we got to the, uh, the mixed feelings given uh, Cardona's record in terms of reopening. But I think it's worth uh, just recalling the early centuries ago days of uh, Trump's early time in office when every single cabinet appointee was someone who was committed to the destruction of the department they were in charge yes, of. Yes, totally, you know, yeah, like totally. Appointing an, uh, like an oil lobbyist to be in charge of the interior, appointing um, Rick Perry, who famously wanted to get rid of the Department of Energy as the Secretary of Energy, and then DeVos in education. I, I mean, I think even if someone might hold positions that are debatable or that we would disagree with. I think it's also worth just acknowledging how nice it is that at least they are people who actually care about the thing they're in charge of who are, who are actually want their department to succeed. Right. And are, are qualified to run it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There are people we can actually have like, there, it's a, the concept of having hope for their administrations actually, <laughs> right? Yes, I'm. I'm going to do something similar. I'm not going to give Rick Perry credit for anything, <laughs> but I will say that once he became the head of the Department of Energy, he was like, "Oh, this energy also includes nuclear weapons, and so it is. It's important now." <laughs> so he wanted to, which means that he wanted to get rid of it before he knew what it did. Anyway. Yeah. I, I do think hilariously uh, Perry was one of uh, Trump's more successful appointees. <laughs> <laughs> Is he still there? I don't even know. I honestly don't remember. But, I mean, he was always quiet. I feel like the yeah. only thing I learned about him <laughs> as Secretary of Energy was he learned what the department did and he liked it now. Like, there was no, you know. He resigned on December 1st, 2019, for what it's Oh, okay. Now on December 1st, okay. Dan Bruyette. And that's that's just how quiet he was. Right. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Like, if that's the highest piece of praise we can give someone is, like, they, yeah. a cabinet member, and they just kept quiet. <laughs> yes. Yipes. Yeah. Um, so uh, another co- sort of thing that has um, been making the rounds in terms of what the Biden um, administration Department of Education will look like um, Cardona has really championed that Connecticut has this free college program at its 12 public community colleges, um, which is really in line with Biden having pledged to make attendance at community colleges um, free and attendance at public four-year colleges free for families with incomes of less than $125,000 a year. Um, So we're maybe looking at um, on, on a positive note, we're maybe looking at, at someone who really is actually going to be dedicated to um, making higher education more affordable, if not um, completely possible because it is free, uh, which is interesting, I think. I guess that has less to do with the pandemic, but I don't know. Well, I mean, it because it, like one of the versions of the future of higher education is that residential, the residential college experience that we have been talking about all throughout season one as like what we sell um, is going to become increasingly more expensive and more exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's 
it's good that somebody in charge is thinking about ways to make the the college education affordable. It is interesting to think about what it would do when we are able to fully go back to a residential college experience. Um, if public four-year college is free across the nation for families mm-hmm. with a relatively low income, um, what is that going to like? It's interesting to think about what the ripple effects of that will be. Do you know what I mean? Like, will small liberal arts colleges try to up their um, like the, the, the amenities that they offer. Cause we know that those things cost more money. Um, colleges yeah. are already in this arms race of like, who has the best rec center, who has the best dining, um, because it college is so similar everywhere, right? It becomes about these little tiny add-ons, like which colleges do, um, laundry service, like free laundry oh service. God. I mean, it's not free wow. because you pay for it. But yeah, this is um, some of the things that that families really end up kind of choosing between, like who has the best amenities, which is the best kind of country club, so to speak. Right? <laughs> so I don't, I right. can't decide. I don't know yet. I haven't thought it through. Like the the sort of um, thought experiment of like, you know, if this pretty large segment of the population gets public for your college for free. What's that going to do for everybody else? Is it going to decrease that sort of competition and make tuition go down? Um, or is it going to increase that kind of competition of who offers what uh, for the people who are still going to be paying for college? It's an interesting sort of um, wicked problem to try to tease out what's going to happen. But of course, all of it is is contingent upon us actually getting the pandemic under control. Mm-hmm. Well, and if this, if these policies primarily, I mean, you know, I think the income cap is like 125,000 or something for, mm-hmm. um, you know, for your family or whatever. So obviously there's going to be some people who could have afforded to go to college anyway, and now they're just, you know, it's going to be paid for if they go to a state school and community college is also going to be free. But of course there's going to be a lot of students who maybe couldn't go to a state school because even with in-state tuition, they couldn't afford that. So in theory, there could be, especially smaller schools that are like, have been really damaged by the pandemic, but even before that had existing difficulty with, you know, if they're tuition dependent, keeping enrollment up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. This could be a really huge lifeline for some schools that maybe are on the verge of closing. You can get more students in. There's less of a fear of, you know, having to try to break out the climbing walls and, you know, trying to have some of these weird amenities that we've seen, the lazy rivers that we that we oft make fun of. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could just have more students who maybe they just they just went into the workforce because they want to go to college. Their family couldn't afford it. So that that could be another side of it, too, that will bring some relief, hopefully, in theory, at least to smaller schools, smaller state schools and places that are struggling with enrollment, you know, as much as they are trying to grub every dollar, like tech and UGA, like they're never going to be struggling for enrollment in that same way. They have this national Mm -hmm. brand that they've cultivated over such a long time, but these smaller schools that often get ignored, like they could be the ones who benefit the most from this type of, uh, you know, this type of program. And I think Cardona, he went to like UConn, so at least for his, his, maybe for his grad degree. Um, so he's kind of seen the dynamics at these type of schools. Well, it, it will be interesting to see what happens. 
It will, yeah. I mean, all of this is sort of conjecture at this point, right? Honestly, by the time this episode airs, if you're listening to this um, right now, I will just be happy if we have transferred the power. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Correct. And everything else is going (laughs) to go from there. It's it's, yes. And and we can wait to be disappointed by the new power. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Once it's in. Once it's there. Yeah, exactly. And people stop like being murdered in, um, you know, riots that that get out of control, (laughs) et cetera. Great. I'm ending us on a really happy note. Uh, Yeah. uh, Continuing the serious topic of conversation. uh, Could I ask a really quick question about something you said earlier, Alex? Sure. You were referring to Dr. Miguel Cardona? Uh, is he a medical doctor? Because <laughs> <laughs> we have Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, he. Uh, let me. I'm actually like now gonna pull up what his um, uh, degree is in. Oh, feel... Well, if it's an Ed D, it doesn't count. Remember, we're all exactly, oh. exactly. While while you're looking it up, um, Eric, your question wasn't quite precise. The real question is, has he ever delivered a baby? Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Thank you. That is, in fact, what makes a doctor a doctor. Has anyone checked his dissertation for typos? I feel like this is something we've really got to know. You're right, Molly. He has a a, um, doctorate in education. Nope. Um, So I'm going to assume. But by that count, we all have to strip doctor out of our own titles. Um, It's just a little presumptuous, you know. I mean, how does that person (laughs) – I can't remember who it was that wrote that stupid article. But, like, how does he know Jill Biden has never delivered a baby? Right. There's the presumption right there. I mean, (laughs) she's a mother. Like, she has delivered children out of her own body. I do kind of love that. I hadn't thought uh, the full implications of that through. But, like, I went to graduate school to become a doctor when all I had to do was, like, (laughs) come across (laughs) someone having a baby in a lobby and help them out. (laughs) I would, I would rather get another PhD than have another baby. <laughs> I, I, I just, I hope that we can during the season. I don't know what, what all we're going to talk about, but I hope that we can welcome in guests like um, Dr. Seth Myers and Dr. Iman Shumper. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord in heaven! All right, well. <laughs> I guess that does it for us in our wild speculation about the Department of Education. Um, thank you guys for listening. And um, we're going to we're going to much like vaccine rollout. I hope we're going to get up to speed here <laughs> um, and stop feeling like we're we're um, really behind and confused about everything very soon. One, 100 million good takes in the next 100 days. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> All right. right. Bye, you guys. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.